Welcome back, my friends, to the sweet spot where IT leaders share the insight with other leaders and others that want to lead. My name is Carlos Vargas, and as in every week, I have my two co-hosts, Howard Holton and Paul Lewis. Hey, guys. Hey there. And today we have a special guest. We know him, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to see you again, Carlos, Paul, and Howard. And it was also magnificent to work with you in the past. Uh, my name is Rob Teal, and I'm actually the CTO for one of the CTOs for the state of Oklahoma, doing some exciting things out here in Oklahoma City. So, so we how happened this week? Well, be before the call started, we were talking about jazz and the kind of relaxing efforts that we try to do here as IT folk. Um, right? The, not the least, the, the, the problem ultimately is brain work is hard. It's exhausting. I shouldn't say hard. It's exhausting, right? <laughs> you don't have that, the kind of endorphin release you'd get when you work with your hands. You don't have the, the serotonin release when you do something pleasurable. And so we were kind of chatting about that, right? Paul, Paul and I were talking about having land. And I said, Paul said, it's exhausting. I said, nothing like getting on the tractor with a brush hog. And and actually changing the physical world around you, doing a little manual labor to get that kind of endorphin, that, that kind of, you know, mental release. And then we switched to jazz. And your son, Rob, is is playing jazz. How old is, how old is he? What does he play? He's 17. He plays the piano. And we had a recital on Saturday. And he actually had an original composition that he named Jaguar. And uh, and played our, about the greatest recording. I've got the phone recording of the of the of him playing. But I'm also a big, Howard and I have that in common because I'm also a massive jazz lover. My dad has been a piano teacher for 35 years and he learned to play the piano uh, in the 50s from a, a, a piano teacher that was <clears throat> also a jazz player. But he was classically trained too. So he plays Chopin and Beethoven, all the classical pieces, but he also plays a lot of jazz from that era as well. So I grew up as a kid with that sound in my house my entire life. And did so he teach could, you? Are you now a piano player also? Well, I'm a, I would consider myself somewhat of a hack. Hmm. Um, so I can sit down and play the piano and you would think, wow, that sounds really good. He needs to know how to play the piano. Problem was that whenever we were sitting down to take lessons, we would always end up in dad and son arguing about something other than piano. <laughs> so I, never, I was never able to power through that. So you know a few songs really, really well. Yeah, but, and, but about my, uh, he's, he lives in Oklahoma City. He moved, he sold his music school in Los Angeles uh, 15 years ago and moved to Oklahoma City and started one here. So he's been teaching all my kids piano. That's nice. awesome. Yeah, and my yeah. youngest has really, really been the one that's just taken off with it. The other ones were kind of like, uh, you know, I'll play the piano, but my youngest plays it every day. I hear him in his room playing every day because he loves it. Do you get a discount or you're paying rack rate for that kind of service? Got a family, got the family. <laughs> <laughs> they have a really good, it's very old fashioned. He comes up and my wife makes him a big old dinner and that's the deal. <laughs> that is right? Yes. So yeah, Carlos, what are we talking about today? I don't know. I thought that we're gonna actually go through the idea of what CTOs or CIOs go through and that conversation in how to lead effectively in an environment. So Paul and I talk a lot about kind of um, 
edge level strategy, edge level leadership, right? Um, we talk a lot about being in organizations with high budgets, talk about a lot about, you know, if you are looking on, on how to spend your not keeping the lights on funds, right? We talk about DevOps, we talk about cloud first, we talk about all, all kind of all this new stuff, right? And we talk about leading, leading teams a lot. Um, let's talk a little bit, Rob, about kind of where you're at, right? Where, where you're working for the state, so you're not the highest funded guy on the block, right? You're working for the state, so how do you recruit people for a state position knowing the pay isn't necessarily leading edge either, right? You're not competing with FANG for pay. Right, Silicon Valley has got you beat. They sure do. Um, I will say that a lot of it is creating a fantastic culture, and especially with the younger uh, younger generation, is providing an opportunity for them to actually change the city. Uh, and the way that we're digitizing between departments and taking things that were previously in silos and bringing them together uh, with with the digital transformation of our state, because we're sort of in our I would say the third, third or fourth year of, of our digital transformation as a state, we have 133 agencies. And so my, while it's not quite as lucrative as being a Silicon Valley person, the reward is a lot more immediate and proximate. So you can see, oh wow, this is, we just eliminated all this paper and we're making it where instead of it taking three hours to do this government, get this government service, you can now do it in five minutes with an app. So, that's some of the tools that you would use. And then also just creating a great work environment, which I like to do whether I'm in Silicon Valley doing, you know, working for a large company or a small company because we spend so much time at the office. Um, I'm extremely cognizant of what that means and some of the negative effects it can have when it's toxic. And because I've been in toxic work environments and also the, some of the great positive effects that you can have on others in their careers and the ability to mentor them and just people saying, hey, I want to come work for you. I'd, so that it's it's easy for me because uh, in the in the past, I've just my career was has really been great. And almost everyone that's ever reported to me, I could call them and say, hey, I would like you to come work for me again. And they would they be a very high chance that they would come and come and work for me again, which is a great, a great compliment. But uh, that's that's the way you do it. If you're a jerk, you're probably not going to be able to. I mean, you may, you may be able to keep, get people, right, and talk a good game a little bit to get them, but then they're not going to stay. For sure. You know? And you got to be able to have competence. Have, they need to be competent. They need to be have all the skills to, that they bring to bear. But at the, at, in the end, you need to care about them. You need to care about their career. And you need to create an environment that is fun to be at. Because, you know, IT can be really tedious and very, very mind-numbing. Can you attract right out of school, like right through academics, whether it's, you know, a data scientist in a university or just, you know, coders right out of college? Is that Yes, although I will say that makes it a little bit tough because you get the idealistic college student and they're convinced in their mind they're going to go work straight for Microsoft or Google or some big company. And it may not be necessarily the slickest thing that you can tell your friends over beer. Oh, yeah, I'm working for the state. Um, but if you show that we're, you know, if you tell them, hey, we're doing a digital transformation, if you go to Microsoft, you might be able to work on some cool things, but, you know, you'll really be able to impact the community here. And that's kind of the way you got to pitch it. Yeah, I think we all have the same, the same problem. And it's something that you brought up, right? We're all super protective of culture. We all, you know, the three of us, four 
of us, we really both like to work in a good culture, but also like to inspire a good culture. Right. Um, and, and I would assume that you like much like Paul and myself are very declarative of that culture. Right. We, we write documents. We ensure everyone sees the culture. Right. We, we like to spread that kind of communication about what the culture is supposed to be, what the strategy is supposed to be, all those sort of things. Right. To make people aware. Um, but, but I think we all run into the same challenge. And that is, especially when you're inheriting a team, oftentimes you're you've got a great culture. You're trying to inspire a great culture and carry that forward. You've got a management style of openness, transparency and clarity. You don't micromanage, right? You, you set expectations and then simply um, expect the expectations to be, to be met or communication to occur if it's not going to happen. Um, but you always have those people working for you who don't do that, right? They're not yeah. leaders, they're bosses. They want the title. Um, what are some of, the, some of the things you've come up with to rectify the situation, right? Um, well, I have... Uh... Normally, say you've got a team of 10 people, you're not, it's very, very slim chance that you're going to have 100% people, 100% of the people actually buy into your culture sell, which is not a sell. When I say that, I don't say that in a way that it's disingenuous because it has to come from the inside out. So if you're going to do culture, it has to be part of who you are and not something you just make up or a platitude it has to be really you. So it has to be genuine and, and sincere. And once you have that, you have a certain amount of people buy in. I've had situations where someone had a terrible attitude on my team, terrible. And, but they were super technically comp competent. So they had value because they, if you put them on a job, they're going to do the job right. But their attitude stank and it actually was causing issues with other teams and just sort of, uh, you know, sort of a bad smell. And every time, every room that they left, not, not literally, but figuratively, the bad smell wherever they left because the attitude. So I told my friends, the other people that were buying in, I said, look, I, I want to work with this guy. And I just think that he's had a bad experience because of X, Y, Z, of some of the things that have happened in the organization. Will you guys help me change his attitude? And they said, yeah, I'm all in. So I bought some, some of my teammates in that were, were, were all dedicated to the culture that I was wanting to create. And they said, yeah, no problem. And Lombok, within like four or five months, the guy did a 180 turnaround. No more bad attitude, no more complaining, uh, no more toxicness. He literally changed. It was a transformation. And I will, I will say for other managers as well, is it's very easy to take the, the lazy route. Like, I don't think this guy's a good fit. I'm letting him go without actually putting the work in as a manager to give them the opportunity to change you know, really get engaged with them and ask them what it is. Listen carefully. I knew that he was disgruntled about, you know, for his previous experiences. And so I made the assessment that, hey, this guy's not a bad guy. He's just highly disgruntled and it's, it's showing. And so what, where do we get him where he's not disgruntled and he changes, he makes a 180 turn. Had a tremendous amount of success uh, with that. That's just one, one method that I've done. Some of it's where you can get do reorgs. Like I definitely wouldn't put certain people on certain teams. So like if you have two personalities that really don't mix well, then, then why force, force them to mix? You want to do that generally. You tell them you got to be polite to each other and be professional and be kind. But you know, I'm, be, simply because you have so much personality conflict, I'm not going to put you on the same project team, right? Until they mature at least enough and, yeah, and then they can maybe come together at a later point. So some of those, so those are some of the techniques that I've used in the past uh, when it comes to 
helping people buy into the culture. And it takes time. It takes patience. And a lot of managers and leaders don't have the, they don't want to, they don't want to take the time. You, yeah. you also learn from spectacular failure, right? So I've, I've been in many situations where I've waited too long, right? That this person was, their level of passive aggressiveness was negatively affecting the team, but I felt that their accomplishments were in some ways making up for that negative attention. And that clearly wasn't true. Right. And I waited too long and it was having a much deeper impact in the team. And eventually, you know, I let them go, but you know, the damage was done in many ways. And then I had to spend a good portion of, you know, waking hours sewing the team back together in many ways um, and earning back the trust that I lost by not taking action soon enough. So sometimes you learn those lessons the hard way. It's a catch 22, no doubt about it. It's a catch 22. Yeah. And there's, and, 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 and there is, I think a difference between management and leadership is, is, is in how you described Rob, the method that you used, right? Management is entirely too focused on the, the objective kind of components, right? How does this person review? What are the KPIs? What are the things that show up on a spreadsheet that I report up, right? Leadership is about caring about the people, right? Leadership is about recognizing that I have a team and I have individuals and both of those organisms need to need to be in balance and need to survive, right? And that means you are responsible as a leader to take the time to mentor, to try to repair those situations, right? And I will say it's significantly easier, easier to repair an individual, right? Um, an individual contributor is actually what I mean. Um, where it becomes hard is when you have a toxic boss, Oh, and I don't mean your boss. I mean, you know, your CTO, manager, right? People have a toxic director or a toxic manager um, that doesn't understand what management is supposed to be, that doesn't understand what leadership is supposed to be, that doesn't understand that that it's not the pack past the buck position. It's the responsible position, right? It's the it's not the the position of push. It's the position of protect, right? And and I found those are very very hard to change and and in those people you have two options in my experience and and, and I'd love to discuss right the first option is mentor which you which I always try to do the second option is let go hmm. right release back into the wild <laughs> because what I have found and I I again I'd love to hear your perspective as, uh, in a, in a second here is they either take instruction and want to improve and we're simply emulating a formerly bad boss or that's how they see management and they're, they don't want to, they're going to be bitter if they become an individual contributor again. I would say that the way I've managed with toxic leaders that when you come into an organization is normally it's a trust and competence question. Um, they've probably had other leaders that have been in your role in the past and there's been a lack of trust and then also a lack of competence. So what I like to do before I start <clears throat> engaging in mentoring or trying to redirect some of that negative energy from the leader is I just get my head down. I go in and start getting some big wins where, you know, one or two big wins where they're like, it makes them stop and go, okay, this guy actually really knows what they're do he's doing and, and he's doing a good job. And then I wait patiently for an opportunity to begin the mentor conversation. Um, and then I do some protecting, right? Because you want to try to protect your people. If they're coming down and they're toxic and they're making people upset, I've seen it all. 
So you have to be a shield, which requires some courage, to be honest, as a leader, to kind of step in between for a while and say, let me handle this. Let me go get some wins. Then we can talk again. And then when you, if you don't get the wins, then you're pretty much doomed. But uh, get in there, get the wins, and then re-engage in the conversation. And then slowly but surely, you can kind of turn the volume down, is what I would call it, on the way that they're talking to you, the way they're speaking to others, some of their negative behaviors. Sadly enough, the military has this problem. Um, I'm also in the, the, uh, the Air National Guard as an officer. And you'll have people go all the way up the ranks, and they got there and had toxic work environments or they're toxic leaders and no one's willing to address, hey, you've been a toxic, you're a toxic leader. And even though you've made rank on paper, just like we're talking about the difference between management and leadership, no one has had the courage, whether that's them having a really bold personality and people are afraid to confront them um, or it's a systemic issue where uh, there's been lots of opportunities for that to happen and no one did because they were lazy. But it's a real issue because you get people that have maybe have gone their entire career with no one saying, you can't talk to people like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it has, we see it all around us. So it's a very sensitive thing. You have to have high emotional intelligence to jump into that. But you also have to have high levels of competence in your skill set and in your field to be able to prove to that person who doesn't have a high EQ necessarily to say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about stuff that that that's what uh, has to do with emotional intelligence, but uh, I'm going to prove my competence first in in, techn- in technical skill and delivering the results that I promised. Yeah, you you said it's all about trust, and and frankly, the entire podcast could end there, right? <laughs> of course, no one knows what that means, but the fact is, everything we do as leaders relies on trust, right? I trust you to do your job. You trust me to set expectations and protect you, right? I trust you to say, I don't know. And you trust me to accept, I don't know is a good answer, right? You, 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 I trust that if you say, I don't know, you're going to figure out the answer and come back to me. And I give you the safety of saying, I don't know. Um, right. It's funny. I, I'm, I'm at a new organization, much like you. And I'm, I'm kind of putting together those initial kind of communication documents, right? This is, what, this is who we are. This is where we're going. And I've spent three months interviewing, getting kind of the lay of the land, right? I'm not coming in to apply some new wrapper around, you know, some new declaration that doesn't fit the organization. Um, but, but trying to write a cultural statement, right, that captures what the company wants to be, right? Who they are, right? The things that are important. And I kind of want to just write, um, it's a culture of, I don't know, not because they don't know who they are, but because the one thing missing is this sense that, that you can be safe in saying, I don't know, and how valuable that is, right? I trust that I don't know is a perfectly fine answer because you can't know everything. Right. And I don't know means I'm going to go figure it out. It's never come up before. It came up now. I'm going to go figure it out. Right? I don't know means it doesn't matter if I didn't document it before. We want to be better tomorrow than we are today. You and might- knowing that the goal of the organization holistically isn't to know everything and that you have to have, and we've used this term many times, ecosystems of partnerships. Right, In order to do something new, it probably isn't with my 5,000 people because my 5,000 people really know my business. If I want to do something else outside of my business or introduce new technology that my technologists don't understand, 
You want to expand your reach outside of the organization and bring that in, not to displace you, but to actually create capability to which you don't have, right? And that takes uh, guts, right? It takes guts to admit you don't have that knowledge and it takes guts to reach out and try to bring it into your organization. And trust. Uh, and trust, yeah. It's especially hard. Just that I'm not going to be displaced as an individual. Well, it's, if you have engineering-led and engineering-heavy organizations, I don't know. It's really hard for an engineer to say, uh, some of them at least. Whenever I've worked with engineers, I, that's where you see a lot of the, the anti-I don't know where they're not willing to admit it, uh, which is unique, right? It's whenever you get surrounded by engineers, you pause and go, oh, I'm surrounded by engineers. And when I'm not talking about technical engineers, gosh, we're in IT, right? We work with network engineers and IT engineers our whole life. I'm talking about like, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, mm -hmm. those types of engineers, um, completely different personality type and model. And a lot of times if you have an organization that's heavy in that, it trickles down. It does, it does, right? I'm working at a manufacturing company and, and it, is, it is definitely engineer heavy. And some of the conversations you have to go, okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm not going to design a heat pump. <laughs> I don't get to design a network, right? <laughs> You're an engineer, but you're a mechanical engineer. I'm going to stay out of your swim lane. How about you give me the respect to staying out of my swim lane? And we'll talk about it. Because the last seven words that came out of your mouth are from 1982. <laughs> don't do it that way. And there are good reasons we don't do it that way. Let's have a conversation of mutual respect, because right now you're not actually being respectful. Wow. And, and I find that conversation tends to not go well, but needs to be had. <laughs> You know what so, I mean? Like there's a, there's a level of kind of arrogance that comes along with some engineers um, and, and in those, it, it doesn't necessarily go well, but it, but it still needs to be had. Right. And I find every, even if they walk away from the table, they always come back to the table and they go, you know, okay, you're probably right. Let's have a conversation. Did you remind them that Novell doesn't produce netware anymore for personal token ring implementation? I, I asked them to go see if they can find <laughs> them. If they can see what Novell's doing now and how network netware is going. Did you guys ever work on that? I'm a Novell guy, actually. My first coming out of the gates networking was before there were Windows NT, and I worked on Novell networks with, with the military. So I got started with DOS and Lantastic over ArcNet. Wow, those yeah. are memories. Yeah, and I was, I was working at the Head Start with the Head Start um, was one of my customers, right, which was a preschool a pre pre it was a preschool thing pre-k started funded by the um the clinton administration and it was like the wife of the of the baptist minister in town called him like hey i need some help so we go over and help her and and kind of got the classroom kind of figured out and she goes hey the district office needs some help for for kicks for um pre-k can you think you can help them out so we they were 45 miles away, right? So we drove down little rural school district. We drove down and they're like, hey, our server crashed. It was Novell and I'd never seen it before. They're like, do you think you could fix it? I, I don't know. You got some manuals or something? And I don't know if you remember, but the Novell bookshelf was a bookshelf. And they're like, yeah, right. over there. And I, I, you know, like, again, DOS, Lantastic, WordPerfect was kind of my world at the time. A few other things, right? And all the books were reasonable. And I looked over at that and I went, no, no, I meant a book. Like, do you have one? <laughs> right. So I took the library, took it home, and it, and it took it took a little bit to figure out, but got it back up and running and then became the Novell guy because I fixed <laughs> one. 
Um, and then, yeah, I dug into it hard. That was my world for almost a decade, I would say. So um, I loved Novell. I thought it was great. So did I, actually. We could talk about that. I've actually had, I had to, what I liked about it is the, the uh, NLM feature. For example, like when you're booting my, a Microsoft server, you, once it starts its boot process, you can't load it in modularly. And right. one thing I liked about Novell is that if you thought there was a corrupt section of the boot process, you could actually modularly load it by doing the NLM commands. Gosh, I can't believe this is all still at the top of my head. I know. It's amazing. It's all coming you back. You better have a quick call with your networking team to see if you can help. What, what, I, what I liked was you could actually, you could interrupt, the, I think F5 interrupted the boot process. Yep which just loaded base DOS with no configuration. And then you right. can walk through, cause it just launched using, it launched with DOS as its, as its basis before replacing it as the operating system, right? So you can- yep. Auto run. And I remember um, there was a, an MCNE, master CNE, and my boss at the company I worked at, and they're fighting with this, with this server real bad. And they had been, I was young. I was, I was a snot nosed, we'll, we'll say 19. I think I was 19. I was this snot-nosed kid that that came in, um, and this guy was mid 40s and had had kind of run the roost and was kind of a dick, but he hadn't really updated any of his skills for a decade. You know what I mean? So so they're messing with this thing for absolutely hours, and they're like, and and I hear him in the back, and they're cussing and swearing, and and I come in and I'm like, hey guys, what's up? And they're like, I, and the guy's like, I don't need any help. Oh, okay. So I turn around to leave, and the bot and the owner goes. Maybe we should take a break. Like, what's it going to hurt to let him to let him look at it? He's not going to fix it, and and you know, then you can show him how to fix it later, and it'll be a learning right. experience. And I walk up, and I do the boot interrupt, and I do the NLM, and I walk all the way through it, and I go, oh, there you go, that's the one that failed. Do you want me to fix it, or do you guys think you have it from here? Like, never seen the command, didn't know the command existed, and in thirty seconds of knowing the command, it showed right where the problem was. It was like the number number one or number two thing you used. And I remember register memory. Do you remember that? Yep. Yes. Novell would only recognize 16 megabytes, I think. And you had to register every block above that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting segue because as leaders, you're remembering processes to teach how to do stuff that's still valid. Because we're talking about Novell but it's actually leadership principles or processes. So how do we transfer that? Like we said, we have people that are on leadership skills or leadership positions, but we also have engineers. How do we transfer that so they can then apply it? Because oh, today I'm teaching the Novell class that. next week, actually. I've got, I've got one going on this weekend. We're going we're gonna to go through Novell 3.1, stand up a little lab, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing it back. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's that. actually a, I think that there's a Novell VM that you can download if you want right. to around with it. So I'm going to look for it. I'm sure there is. It's 25 yeah. megabytes. Probably runs, runs great. You know, if you've ever, it, it reminds me of practicing martial arts. If you've ever practiced it, they will over the same move a thousand times. You'd be able to execute it once right. And the, the culture now, well, it's popular now. Well, if I have a problem, I'm just going to look it up on YouTube. And you, before YouTube um, was available, the, the folks like Howard and Paul and you, Carlos, and myself were 
here's the method you use. Here's the OSI model. Here's how you actually start the troubleshooting process and you start walking your way through it. There's a lot of mentoring still to be done because it's learning how, how to troubleshoot in a way that's uh, a particular process and it wins, right? Howard went in there and started doing the, started going through some of his, his troubleshooting processes. And for whatever reason, those guys had missed it. So there's a lot of things like that that can be taught still. Um, and and, uh, and I also, it's really humbling as well because you get in there and you start troubleshooting the wrong direction and then it comes down that it was a physical connection problem, right? Well, I just spent the last three hours thinking this was a network problem. And I and you look you look over and uh, the RJ45 is slightly unseated from the deal and you were troubleshooting drivers or something like this. You know, we don't we, get to- we do a whole pod on troubleshooting because I've spent a good portion of my time just teaching what it's not likely to be right here. Here's the situation. It's not likely these five things because of the current situation. And that's actually a pretty hard problem to overcome because most people, you know, you've got 20 people on a phone call. They're all looking at their own domains, presuming that their own domains might be the problem when you know, within the first five minutes, you could eliminate 16 of them. <laughs> it's a great way to do it. It's only for these four people that really need to worry about it at the moment, just based on, you know, experience. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Um, especially in the earlier days, uh, you'd frequently get, you know, somebody, Hey, I can't get to this website. Hey, I can't get to this website. Hey, I can't get to this website. Right. Um, and my guys would always have a fit because I would sit down, open up, the command prompt and I would ping 127.0.0.1. Right. And they're like, they're not trying to get there. I know. I know. I'm just then doing the first step here. The local yeah. IP, then ping the router, right. right? Then ping a known good DNS server, a known good public IP address, then do a trace route, right? And, and, and I would do like six steps before I even looked at what the website was they were trying to get to. Right. And they're like, why do you do that? And I said, because if I don't know that the machine is actually connected and healthy and responding to DNS requests, right? Do an NS lookup for some other from for some something else, right? Clear the DNS cache. Then how do I know that the problem first off is going to be relegated to this one site, and second off that the problem's not not with the actual machine, like you know, like like Rob said, right? The the those stupid the stupid RJ 45s the, where the little, the little tongue gets pinched all the time and right. never actually comes up to lock it into place. And then you just need a little bit, somebody walking by on a, on a raised floor jiggles that just loose enough after the 15th time they walk by and it's no longer connected. Right. Right. Um, and, and to, to Rob's point, YouTube is fantastic. I learn a ton of stuff from YouTube. I very seldom learn how to troubleshoot when something goes wrong from YouTube. That's right. Right? Yeah. I mostly learn what the install steps are to get something up and running, but if it doesn't go well, YouTube's not the place that's generally going to tell me why it didn't go well. Right. And you can learn how to fix something that's known, but it's very difficult to use it to find something, right. find the actual problem. Right. It's great for learning something new, right? That's how I learned Ansible. That's how I learned CICD. That's how I learned GitHub. That's how I learned all of these, whatever I happen to be, you know, mucking with that particular day. Um, but it is not how I learn how to troubleshoot when Ansible doesn't work. It's not how I learn how to troubleshoot when I've screwed up my, when I've mangled my Git repository, how do I get it back, right? It's not, it's, it's never how I learn how to fix those things. And then it's about trolling through the untold archives of the internet, 
looking for that one little nugget that looks close enough to maybe kind of solve the problem in a similar way. Mm -hmm. right? And it's also embarrassing to find articles from 10 years ago that still work today that the vendor hasn't picked. So, <laughs> so you, you just hit something. One of my most views videos that has the largest amount of views is something that I did about 10 years ago about Hotmail. About how your emails get deleted. So it's the and four, it's, it's four 75 year old people who can't remember their Hotmail password. Finally, they remember it and they go, oh, crap, I don't know what to do. And they look at Carlos's video. Who uses no, Hotmail? It's so it, weird. It's interesting that, like you just mentioned, the process is what people are not getting today. So let me then ask this question for all of you. How as leaders, because we don't have endless hours. I don't know if your day is different than mine, but my day only have 24 hours. <laughs> Eight is to sleep, four is to BS, and the rest is what <laughs> or supposed work. So how do you then take and you transfer because that's why we are leaders, because we have gone through an experience and we want to help others. How do you transfer that to others so they can learn? So I do Greybeard Lunch and Learns, right? The most popular of which was always um, the first three or four layers of the OSI model because people don't understand it. Routing and switching. I can't tell you the number of times routing and switching have been a problem and then DHCP and DNS on top of it. So I do Greybeard lunch and learns. We all have the same lunch. It's completely optional. I'll run it once a week, right? Whatever topic anybody wants, and then we'll switch out. Once, once I establish the pattern of the lunch and learns, it's really easy to have someone else come in and go, okay, cool, let me do my Greybeard stuff. Let me do my stuff. Um, or somebody new, somebody young, right? Is like, hey, I just did this thing. I've got a little lab at home. I spent the weekend learning, learning Ansible. Can I come in and can I do Ansible for a lunch and learn? Absolutely. And once you get the second person, the person who's not you doing a lunch and learn, pretty soon you'll have a calendar full of lunch and learns. And they're all optional, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if there's a certain number of people in the room, I cater lunch, like, that's how I do it. <laughs> Motivates people to go just to get the free lunch. It does. It does. Always do free lunch. Don't ever skip the free lunch if there's more than like five people. Right. I like to have a lean Six Sigma black belt forward slash business process guy that is my right-hand person or gal. And when you see stuff like that, particularly in government organizations where they're generally not lean at all, they're the opposite of duplication of efforts everywhere. And uh, when you see stuff like that, that you say, hey, we need to actually create a document that trains people and then fix this problem. If we don't, it's just gonna keep happening over and over and over again. And what I've done in the past is we'll have a big whiteboard area and we just start adding stuff to the list as we find it. Because um, we obviously have our regular daily jobs to do, but if stuff comes up like that, if you don't actually have someone making it their priority to go back and revisit it, a lot of times it just gets skipped. So at, at least it's a technique that I've used. I'm like, hey, put it on the board, put it on the side as a possible thing. We need to create something that actually permanently fixes this across the organization. Otherwise, it's just going to keep happening. And then, we, and then later, if we want, we can run some analysis and say, this is what it's costing the organization. So, and I, I've always been able to justify the expense of having someone like that 
available because they've saved so much money uh, just by documenting business processes and communicating it out to the rest of the organization. So I don't want to interrupt, but but I know we're running out of time. And, and there is actually a question that I think is really germane. Paul and I are big fans of work from home, right? What I'm curious about is both your feelings and the state of Oklahoma's feelings on kind of returning to the office versus work from home. Have you guys picked a balance? Is it kind of a light switch decision, right? Um, yeah. We went from work from home to everybody's on-prem. Like what's, what's, what's your, both the state's thoughts and your thoughts on, on that topic? Knowing you're currently in the office right now. I am. I mean, I hope. I hope you don't have a Lexmark printer at home. <laughs> yes. The uh, we did. Everyone worked from home. Now it is. You, if you want to work from home, um, a certain number of days, you can communicate with your supervisor. They sign it and say, "Yeah, they're working from home on these days." If if there is meetings that they think should be in person, then you still got to come in for the in meeting uh, for in person meetings. Um, I'm fine either way. I actually like coming to the office, uh, but I can, we've known this for years. It's like all of these, not, I would say, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but people that aren't tech, have technology, back, that don't have technology backgrounds really struggle with the idea of how are we going to keep our workforce productive and keep an eye on our employees if we can't see them. And technology, we've known this for the last 15 years that the technology is there. You don't have to be in the office. So it's a huge relief. I'm, I love the flexibility of it. Um, I'm perfectly fine with it. I, I've tried it and it's weird. It, as a matter of fact, I worked at a government organization previously and I told them I wanted to have a work from home policy and they all just laughed at me. <laughs> and, uh, and I wrote a policy. They said, no, we're, we don't, we're not doing that. You know, and there was all, it was all the traditional old school reasons why. And one of the, it was hilarious because I had my right-hand guy, it was all a Six Sigma dude, and we wrote a policy for working from home and it never got signed by, uh, by the people that needed to sign it. And it, then it ended up being an audit deed. And then as soon as COVID hit, they had it signed within 30 days. <laughs> I was like, you guys are, it's ridiculous, right? The, the idea, and this guy, you have people that are commuting two hours or an hour and 30 minutes to get into the office. Don't make them come in every day. Save the planet, you know, save them, save the gas. It's costing him more money. You give him a raise by letting him work from home. Right. Because he's having so, to spend that money on gas. So is your office going to evolve? Like, is it becoming more of a meeting space, right? More of a stand-up area than a work space? Yes. It's optional for those, say, for people that have, uh, for whatever reason, their home is not an area that's conducive for work. They get to choose, but it is what you said. It's more of a meeting space um, where people come in and they meet and then they go back to their respective areas. I come in uh, to my area because it's very traditional in, in that sense that everyone still shows up every day. I don't have to be here. I could work from home permanently if I wanted to, um, but I do come in for the relationship side of it. So particularly, you know, in the first coming out of the gates that I'm new in the role for the relationship building part, it's really hard to, to develop strong relationships when you're always doing it remotely. You know, there's a lot of nuances you miss. Yeah, we have a creativity and culture rule. So the reason why you'd come in the office is to maintain and grow the culture. In other words, you come in to celebrate a success. Right, get, get everybody in, we'll have a barbecue or we'll do a, yes. uh, a stand up in terms of of uh, 
uh, of our quarterly numbers, as an example. Um, and then creativity, if you're starting from scratch, you have a blank whiteboard and you need the sticky note and you need to work in a room for several hours to make that true, do it together in a room versus virtually, you know, trying to stay online for four hours is almost impossible. 100%. When I did project management, I did it for years. Whenever I did my kickoff call, if I had a team, say I had like a two developers, um, a network engineer, and three other people that were working on a project with me, a big project, I would always do my kickoff call in person, even if it meant me flying, because you can set the communication expectations and really kind of do some culture, uh, what I would call culture seeding, right? You're starting to plant the seed. They may be from different departments or different groups. They may have different bosses, but you as the team leader, the project manager for the group, really get to set what this culture for this project is. So I always like to do those in person for the same reasons you're mentioning, Paul. I think it's very difficult to do it when you're not in person. I, I like that definition of um, creativity and culture. I like, I, I like specificity whenever possible. Um, and, I, and I like specifying, we use the office for creativity and culture. Those are the mandatory things. Um, I, I'm never gonna say my values have to be someone else's values, right? So I value being in the office when others are in the office, right? The kind of casual conversation, the, the passive team building, the passive culture building by being present. At the same time, um, I find I'm infinitely more productive during the times when I'm not in a meeting, when I'm at home, because there are simply fewer interruptions. Mm -hmm. right? There's no one comes by and can knock on my door. Um, but I'm never gonna say you can't come in the office or and I don't ever wanna be put in a position where, where I have to say you have to come in the office, right? What I like is, is um, I like to think about it from the perspective of, I want the largest meetings on Wednesday and then starting after 10, and then let's trickle down from there, mm -hmm. right? Um, let's, let's schedule one-on-ones for Tuesday and Thursday, right? And, and let's trickle down, right? So that, so that you're bookended by really hard, like Monday's a hard day, right? Everything from the weekend catches up with you. Everybody's kind of got their kick, kickoff stuff. So take your phone calls, limit it to four hours of, of meetings, absolute max, phone calls and all, and spend four hours concentrating on catching up from the weekend and kind of getting the, the week started. Tuesday, maybe we're in the office doing small meetings, some creative stuff, some, some whiteboarding with team members that we've got to get on. Wednesday, we've got our big kind of, hey, these are our big standups. These are our big rocks. These are our, maybe our vendor meetings for projects, right? Our project status meetings. Thursday, we start to tail off a little bit, right? We're back to kind of creative and, and pushing projects forward. And then Friday, I want to concentrate on all the stuff that I didn't get to done because it didn't get done because meetings were there. My one-on-one -on -one with my supervisor, my one-on-one -on -one maybe with, with a few of my people, and then concentrate on closing the week out and try to close the week out as seamlessly as possible with the least amount of carryover till Monday, which means no meetings on Friday. Right. I don't consider one-on-ones meetings, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I love how intentional that is, Howard. That is a beautiful model. I might borrow it. You're welcome to steal it. Because I uh, might right now, you know, being how new I am in the role, there is very little, I mean, I'm intentional about what I do, but that is real, a really great, a great thing to stop and think about. I love the Wednesdays after 10 as well. It yeah, feels blog worthy. I've put that on paper. If I've got to force people to come in, let's consider their commute and not make them 
leave at 6 a.m. If I do it at 10 and I say, you need to be in the office at 10, they're still going to get up at six. They're still going to get up at seven, right? They've got an hour to kind of relax, have some breakfast, respond to a few emails, kind of get their head straight, not be stuck in rush hour traffic, right? Which if we start, if we think about the planet, that's really the worst thing we can do is tell people you're going to spend two hours idling in traffic to come into the office for a series of meetings that you're not really going to like. You know what I mean? You're going to, you're going to start coming in with a bad attitude. You're going to damage the planet more. Let's just say 10 o'clock, give everybody time to kind of trickle in as they need to. Some people are going to come in at seven. Some people are, you know what I mean? They get a little bit of extra time to do some casual passive connections. And then at 10, we start and no one feels like they have to get up at seven o'clock in the morning or be in the car at seven o'clock in the morning for an eight o'clock meeting. I think that is so considerate. I think it just shows us that you're a strong leader, Howard, to be honest, um, because most leaders don't stop and say, how is this going to affect everybody else? And it's a, it's a really good exercise. Let's consider what how this is impacting other people that are on my team. Um, that's beautiful. I love it. Well, guys, it's been an awesome session together, having fun. And I think that we probably should make this irregular to connect uh, and keep learning from each other. So what I took from this conversation, make sure that you have a sustainable culture, that you're paying attention to them. If you have people that are toxic, spend the time with them. It's not just about letting them go. Sometimes you have to put it to better pastures and let them go. But sometimes it's better to spend the time so your culture will grow. And importantly, that when you have people that may not be technical competent, that they think that they know what they're talking, bring them to the table and share what is your side and what is their side. Did I miss anything? Good summary. No. Good summary. No, but I, I like the idea of having Rob back every quarter. I think yeah. we should make that happen. I mean, oh. I'm big fans of all of you. So, and I like, I saw your podcast on LinkedIn. I think you guys are doing some great things. Cool. Well, my friends, make sure that you share this podcast, you subscribe. And as we say always, we want to grow to be the leaders that we can be. So make sure that you share with others so they can grow too. We'll see you in our next episode.